If you would, take a Bible and open me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1028. And if you're here and you don't have a Bible at all, uh, take one of the pew Bibles home with you uh, that you might that that might assist you in uh, knowing the Lord. Let me uh, pray before we get started. Lord, I agree with uh, my sister Shay. Uh, to you belongs all glory, dominion, power, forever and ever. Amen. And we do want your word to cut where it needs to cut and bind up and heal where that is needed too. Do that now through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, give me his strength that when I speak, I might speak as if speaking the oracles of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many of us enjoy cheering for our favorite team, right? Especially when they, they win. I can remember the 1992 NCLS, bottom of the ninth, two outs, down by one, and Sid Bream slides home to send the Braves to the World Series. <laughs> it's all right, I'm an Astros fan now. <laughs> but I was an excited 10-year-old. Or the 1998 Big 12 Championship game at double overtime and Sir Parker hits the pylon after a slant route leading the Aggies to upset number one, Kansas. I might even, yes, thank you, Aggies. I might even remember my mom jumping on the couch for that one. We were making some noise. Maybe you have an athlete you cheer for uh, or... Maybe you enjoy a good board game and you, you know, seal that victory over your spouse uh, or children. Uh, maybe it's the crescendo in your grandchild's choir concert. You know, one of those where it reaches that point where you got to just get up and, you know. Um, maybe it's a good story or movie where the good guy finally wins. Whatever the scenario, we, we have these encounters where this decisive event happens that, that sends you soaring into joy and, and praise and, and cheer and high fives and applause. Nobody in those moments has to tell you, hey, you should be clapping now, do they? Hey, it's time to shout now. The victory itself, that moment of achievement, whenever you witness it, it sends you soaring into praise and celebration. You are moved by what's, what's happening. In a far greater way, Revelation is doing the same for the church. Because in this book, God reveals a decisive victory that when you witness it, it sends you soaring into praise. God has acted decisively in Jesus to redeem his people, and that victory by Jesus compels 
his people to worship. That's how the passage flows in verses 5 and 6. We, we started this section last Sunday. We looked at the grace and peace from, from God the Trinity. Uh, the, the rest of verses 5 to 6 is going now to narrow the focus to the redeeming work of Christ... And then that goes into the worship of Christ. So we have Christology leading to doxology. Knowing Jesus leads to the worship of Jesus. Okay, so let's read it together, starting back in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1, and then going to verse 6. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's look at this in four parts. I want to review first the person of Christ. The person of Christ. Uh, In the first half of verse 5, this is where we were last week, it says Jesus is the faithful witness. That means he faithfully bore witness to God throughout his earthly ministry. But not only that, he stands today as the faithful witness in his resurrection body. He is also the firstborn from the dead, meaning Jesus inaugurated the end-time resurrection age Already, And that victory then qualifies Jesus to stand as the uh, third title that gives him the ruler of kings on earth. We, we, we talked about how death always ends, uh, it always terminates the rule of earthly, earthly kings. Uh, Jesus is the sole ruler who conquered death itself. Jesus now rules... ...from a glorified state that will never end... ...he rules with an absolute authority... ...that leaves no earthly king beyond the bounds of his control. So that means nobody can call the will of Jesus into question. Nobody can thwart his purposes. There will, be, there will never be a coup that overthrows Jesus. No political party can jeopardize his governance of history. All purposes for heaven and earth will be accomplished. There is no higher position or greater power for Jesus to gain. He has all authority over all kings. So if you took the sum of all the earthly rulers and their armies and you put them against Jesus, Jesus will make them all look about as intimidating as Elmo. Right? That's how great he is. He is intimidated by none of them in his immortal, sovereign greatness. Now, here's why I wanted to review the person of Christ before jumping into the rest of verse 5. That is the king who loves you. The one who reigns above all others, the only sovereign, the one who conquered death, that king in particular loves us. That's what it says, to him who loves us. I mean, it's one thing to be loved by a fe- like a family member or, or a spouse uh, or, or a friend or maybe a, a church body. But that love is limited, isn't it? 
It's limited by the person's emotional capacity. It's limited by the person's ability to meet your truest needs. It's limited by how long their love can last. They, they will eventually die. Well, Jesus' love doesn't have those limitations. He is strong to love in any circumstance. He has the ability to meet our truest needs. His love is forever because He is forever. So you cannot be loved by someone greater than Jesus Christ. Notice a few more things. Notice, uh, notice the, uh, how, how he speaks of loves, right? The New Testament often speaks uh, about Jesus, uh, about how God loved us in the past tense. Jesus' love for his people is decisively revealed in the cross, right? So the apostles remind us when Jesus expressed that love most decisively in the past. It was at the cross, 1 John 4.10, for example. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So He loved us. But this says, to Him who loves in the present tense. So Jesus' love for His people continues, right? It doesn't stop. Now consider how that comes to a church suffering tribulation. When we suffer, various doubts can flood our minds. But one of them is whether the Lord still loves us. Right? We have these questions. Have you forgotten me, Lord? Do you still care about me? What what I'm going through doesn't feel like love. How much longer, Lord? And in the face of those cries, the Lord reveals that Jesus is the one who loves his people. He loves them through the tribulation and through the darkness and through the pain and through the sufferings. He loves us with a love that never ends. That's why Paul can say things in Romans 8 like, who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And he brings up a whole smattering of sufferings, including death itself. And the answer is nothing can. No one can separate us. Jesus' love endures no matter what we face. But let's also clarify this love. When our culture speaks of love, what it often has in mind is moral permissiveness. Moral permissiveness. You are loving to the degree that you let me do whatever I want. That's the way our culture talks about love. But that can't be true. If love is moral permissiveness, then why does Jesus rebuke the churches for sin in chapters 2 and 3? Which we will come to sometime in the future. Right? If it's moral permissiveness, what is Jesus doing? Rebuking the church for their sins. It says Jesus loves, and yet he's calling them out on sin. He's also doing other things, encouragement to persevere and promises. He's also warning and correcting. True love is, corrected, is connected to morality because true love finds its origins in God who is holy. Okay? When Jesus loves the church, here is what that means. He has a genuine affection 
for your good in God such that he acts to see you obtain that good. He has a genuine affection for your good, a passionate affection for you and your good in what's holy, in God himself, such that he acts even to the cost of his own life to see you obtain that good in God. That's true love. It's also a great love and that it's directed at sinners here. That's the us in verse 5. Jesus does not love you because you are so wonderful. He simply chooses to love you unlovely as you are in your sins. But in loving you, he also frees you from your sins. That's where he heads next. Notice the redeeming work of Christ. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. You hear that language? Freedom by blood, kingdom of priests. You should have all kinds of things jumping in your mind and pointing you back to the Old Testament right now, to Exodus. Okay? Those are two big clues that he's pointing us back to Exodus to help us understand what the death of Jesus accomplished. John uses Exodus language here. I wonder if you remember the Exodus. There's a huge problem, right, in Exodus chapters 1 to 3. There's this huge problem. God's people are in slavery. They are slaves to Pharaoh's tyranny and they cannot escape by their own power. God must rescue them. And so God sets his love upon them. And and he makes himself a father to Israel. And as a good father does, he comes to rescue his son. Nine plagues of judgment come against Egypt, but it's not until the tenth plague that Israel will experience freedom. And that tenth plague is the death of all the firstborn. And so as part of freeing his people in relation to this final plague of death, God institutes the Passover in Exodus 12 and 13. Each household was to take this unblemished lamb, they were to sacrifice it, and then they were to paint the blood, paint, paint the doorposts, with, with blood, the blood of that lamb. And when God passed through the, the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn, if he saw the blood on the lamp, on, on, the, on the, the, the doorposts, then he would pass over your household. Everyone under the protection of the lamb's blood would, would not suffer God's judgment and death. And if you escaped that death, Guess what happened the next day? Freedom from slavery. And so the Passover lamb's blood saved from death and then liberated them from slavery. But one more thing the Passover did, it set Israel apart for God's service in the wilderness. The whole point of the Lord breaking the yoke of slavery was so that they could be freed to then serve Him and worship Him and enjoy a covenant relationship with Him. 
That's why he also consecrates the firstborn to himself through the Passover. The firstborn kind of represented the, uh, uh, the, the type of what the whole of Israel should be. They were a people set apart for God's service and they were no longer enslaved to other masters. So that's why God eventually sets them apart as a treasured uh, possession in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, what he further describes as a kingdom of priests. He rescued them and then set them apart from all the other nations as a kingdom of priests. And I want you to just think about that for a moment. What does kingdom have to do with? Dominion. Rule. What does priesthood have to do with? Serving in the presence of God. Are you hearing echoes of Eden in this? Does it remind you of what God made Adam to do in the garden? To rule, reflect God's rule, and to serve in God's presence? What's going on here is that God liberated them from slavery to then set them apart to do what all of us were created to do. Reflect God's rule. Serve in God's presence. Of course, you read the rest of the Old Testament and it's clear that Israel was unable to maintain this status. Being God's kingdom of priests was contingent on their obedience and time and time again they fail. What they needed wasn't just freedom from these foreign oppressors. They needed freedom from their sins. Israel's ongoing bondage, when you read of this story of fail, 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 that is, that is telling us all a story about what we're all like in Adam. Sin is the greater master that's keeping us from reflecting God's rule and serving in God's presence. Sin reigns in our mortal bodies to make us obey its passions. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 6. Even worse, it's not that we're wanting to get out but can't. No, the bondage is such that we prefer it. We've grown used to the chains. We like the chains. We don't want to get out. That's how bad the bondage is. And such a bondage will lead us to death under the wrath of God without escape. So who then can liberate us? Well, according to John, it's Jesus. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb who spills his blood to free us from slavery to sin. Revelation regularly regularly calls Jesus the lamb. Passover is that background. The lamb conquers by his blood. The lamb wins his people by his blood. In the same way the people escaped Egypt at the cost of the Lamb's life, Jesus frees us from the tyranny of sin at the cost of His life. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, and He's talking about Himself, you will be free indeed. So Jesus sets people free 
by dying in their place. Not only that, but he makes you into a kingdom of priests. Israel could never live up to it. Jesus did live up to it, and it's through his work on the cross that we become set apart as a kingdom of priests. Sin no longer rules us. We are now freed to serve God as as we were created to serve him. Being a kingdom of priests isn't isn't just something we're looking forward to one day. It's something we are right now. Freedom from sin means that we can now, right now, reflect God's rule. You can now serve in his presence wherever you are and in whatever you do. As Paul puts it elsewhere... Sin will have no dominion over you. Within the book of Revelation, there are other kingdoms that you can belong to. But these kingdoms are all ruled by the beast. The beast sets himself against Christ. And in Revelation, Jesus' kingdom is not one among some other good kingdoms in the world. You either belong to the kingdom of Christ or you belong to the kingdom that's ruled, the kingdoms that are ruled by the beast. So for Jesus to make us a kingdom means for him to transfer us out of the kingdom of the beast and into his own kingdom. He takes us, he liberates us from the beast's tyranny and he brings us beneath the rule of God. We are a kingdom. We are priests to God the Father and all because of the Lamb's victory over sin and death. More on that More on what that means in just a minute. For now, notice where he moves next. To the worship of Christ. You see how this reflection... There's a progression to this reflection uh, here. he's, He's reflecting on the lordship of Christ... ...and then the love of Christ... ...and he moves to the liberating work of Christ... ...and those three things move the church... ...they compel the church into song. To him... Be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, to render Jesus glory is not to give Jesus something that he lacks. It is to recognize the worth he has. What may surprise you, though, is is that glory is something that's regularly attributed to God in the book of Revelation. It does this in three different ways. God possesses glory that manifests itself, it manifests his intrinsic worth. Like when in, uh, in chapter uh, 15, verse 8, when the sanctuary in heaven fills with smoke from his glory. Okay? Uh, or creatures. This is another way it speaks about it. Creatures must recognize God's glory and praise and devotion. You especially see that around the, like the throne in chapter 4 or later at the end of the book of Revelation and John sees the, this glorious angel and John falls down in worship and the angel says, get up, what are you doing? You're like, worship God, right? He, he deserves the glory. And then uh, one other way it talks about God's glory is that terrible judgments fall on people who refuse to give God glory. So this would be like chapter 16, verse 9, where after some judgments fall on, on the, the kingdom of the, 
the beast and the people refused, they, they do not repent and they refuse to give God glory. And so throughout Revelation, glory belongs to God alone to the extent that if you do not give God glory, you're an idolater and a worshiper of the beast. And yet John does not hesitate here to give Jesus glory. In other words, giving Jesus glory fits into this broader theme where to worship anything else alongside God is idolatry and it merits judgment. And John's point is that Jesus receives glory without compromising that true worship. Because Jesus is one with his Father in worth and glory. Jesus implied it. Applied that himself in John's gospel, chapter 5, verse 23. The Father has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, in light of his glorious person and redeeming work, worship is appropriate for Jesus. Not only does he possess God's glory, but Jesus' redeeming work liberates us to share in that glory as we serve as priests in God's presence. Therefore, we worship Jesus. We include Jesus in the worship of God. All true worship will include Jesus in the worship of God. All other worship is false. So the progression here is that we get the grace... And God gets the glory in Jesus. That's the gist of verses 5 and 6. Now, let's think a little further on what this means for our identity, our worship, and our mission. Let's begin with our identity. Who you are determines what you do at the most fundamental level. Who you are, what you value determines what you do. I tried to find different ways to illustrate this, but if you are a carpenter, you appreciate certain things about wood that others don't appreciate. You give yourself to certain habits to improve your craftsmanship. If you are a nurse, you value ongoing education about the best medical procedures. You're attentive to your patient's health and you double your efforts to preserve life. At a far deeper level, we have a spiritual identity that determines the kind of person we are and what we commit ourselves to. And for the, Christ, for the Christian, Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests. Okay, That's who you are. It's not simply what you will become. It's an act Jesus already completed. He made us a kingdom, it says, priest to his God and Father. So that's who you are right now. There will be days when you do not feel like a kingdom of priests. There will be days when you look around this room and you may think they don't feel like a kingdom of priests. Right? But from God's perspective, this is why we need the Scripture's perspective on who we are. Right? When He pulls back the veil, when Jesus looks at the church, and when Jesus shows you the church, He sees a kingdom of priests. 
I said last week that church is hard. I need to say this week, church is also glorious. We are a kingdom of priests. Do you feel that when you gather in your small groups like Kim was talking about earlier? Or when you gather together here? Or you're interacting in the world together? Do you feel like a kingdom of priests? This shape, this should shape the kind of people we are. It should shape the kind of person you are. It shapes your values and it, it determines your commitments in life. It shapes how we relate to God. We are those who have access to His presence now. We don't have to go through some earthly priest. We don't have to do anything to access His presence, do anything special. Jesus has already made the way for us. We can serve in His presence. It shapes how we relate to each other. Your brothers and sisters are priests too. Priest is not a position in the church. Priesthood does not belong to the leadership. We are all priests. It's what we all are. Part of walking out the Christian life is remembering who you are in union with Christ. In a world like ours, it's easy to start thinking that your fundamental identity is found in other things. Our world is going to tell you your identity is found in what you own. The stuff you have. And the more stuff you have, or the cooler the stuff that you have, the greater person you are. Our world is going to tell you that your identity is bound up in your sexuality. Or it's bound up in your social status. Or it's bound up in your skin color. Or it's bound up in your political party. Sometimes we might even start believing the world and we might start giving ourselves to the wrong things and in the wrong ways. But this is part of the beast's plot to keep you confused and to keep you chasing after a kingdom other than that of Christ. Revelation teaches us to remember that we are a kingdom of priests. So when you go to the office tomorrow, and when you, be, you, when you go, you, you need to remember you are a kingdom of priests. When, when you sit in the classroom, you are a kingdom of priests. When you interact with a customer, you will do so as a kingdom of priests. When you enter retirement, you will still be a kingdom of priests. It's who you are when you're in Christ. From day one of your conversion... To you lie in the grave and see him in glory, you are a kingdom of priests. If you are a kingdom of priests, how does that affect what you do? Okay. One big thing is that it affects your worship. It affects your worship. Give Jesus your exclusive Worship. In the Old Testament, the priestly order represented what the whole of Israel was supposed to be. That's why it really goes bad when the priests, when the priests uh, are defiling themselves, defiling the temple, and not following God. Well, that's the whole people becomes that way, right? So it's a big deal. 
They represented what, what the nation was to be as a whole. They led Israel in the worship of Yahweh because Israel was to worship Yahweh alone and not the gods of the nations. And it's the same with us, except that under the new covenant, we're all priests. The entire church is a priesthood assisting others in true worship. And John even models it for us here by directing us to the worship of Jesus. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so we worship and we sing. When when we see, when we reflect on on the work of Christ here, we're driven to to sing the songs that we've been singing this morning, right? And we lift our voices and we raise them. Sometimes, sometimes we raise them in prayer. Right? And, we, and we celebrate God's goodness. At the same time, we need to be careful when discussing worship. Revelation has, has much more in mind when it comes to worship. Revelation does not reduce worship to the singing that we do on Sunday morning, which is included in that. But sometimes we do this, don't we? Without realizing it, we reduce worship to this moment on Sunday morning. right? You you ever said something like this when you visited another church? I really like their worship. What do we mean? Without thinking, we kind of have reduced it to this hour on Sunday morning where we sing. But that kind of thinking, if you're not careful, it misses a major thrust of the Bible, especially Revelation. Worship has more to do with surrendering all of your loyalties to Jesus Christ every day in everything and with everyone. Okay? Okay? In Revelation, everybody is a worshiper. It's just a matter of whom you worship. Either you worship Jesus or you worship the beast. The beast lures the world into false worship, and he does it with idolatry and sexual immorality and economic exploitation and and political one-upmanship. And people buy the lies of the beast and give themselves to his kingdom. And their slavery to his worship gets so bad that even when God starts bringing the judgments, they still don't repent. And it's, in, it's within this setting that the church's worship of Jesus starts to get tested. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 10, the church is warned that Satan will cast some of them into prison... They must be faithful unto death. What would your worship of Jesus look like in the face of persecution? It's easy for us to to, to sing, worthy is the lamb, in a setting like this. The, The real question is whether you will sing those same words with a gun pointed to your head. How worthy is Jesus when someone says, deny him or we beat your wife? Deny him or we take your kids? Deny him or you'll never see a flower again in a prison cell? And you worship in that moment by remaining faithful to the end. 
That, that's the picture of worship that Revelation brings out. Worldly treasures can test our worship of Jesus. In chapter 13, verses 15 to 17, it says, If anyone wants to buy, sell, or trade, they must receive the mark of the beast. And in John's day, that may have been something like, you know, burning incense to, to the Roman emperor. In our day, maybe it's acknowledging some set of false beliefs about sex, gender, or race to keep your job. It may be someone threatening a lawsuit unless you accept a vision of morality that's contrary to Christ. So they're saying, you can do this and you will get all the the riches and the luxuries and the comforts and the favoritism that you want. Or you can worship Christ no matter how countercultural that loyalty becomes. When you choose to worship Christ over the beast and money, either you starve because you can't buy, sell, or trade, or the beast's people eventually murder you. That's what it means to worship Christ in the book of Revelation. Uh, Or consider how the church's worship of Jesus would be tested before Roman political powers. Caesar was Lord. And often that meant people treated him with utmost reverence and they never, ever questioned his rule. But worshiping Jesus relativized the emperor's political authority, didn't it? Because worshiping Jesus means no person, no government, no regime has the ultimate say on earth. Christ is the true Lord in heaven and he alone has ultimate say. We live in a culture where America is number one, where and and people can worship whatever God they want as long as that God serves our country's interests. And I want to say, don't be deceived by the beast. Keep your allegiance with Jesus and worship him no matter what. To worship Him means to go His way and to follow His words and to uphold His justice even when the world hates it. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Something else. Not only did priesthood mean worshiping the true God, being a priesthood also included teaching people the ways of God. Teaching people the ways of God. And that happened in two primary ways. Displaying and declaring. I should have thought about this before, but if you want some easy way to memorize kind of how this priesthood plays out, think of it in terms of delighting, displaying, and declaring. Delighting in the worship of Christ. Displaying and declaring. We'll, We'll look at those right now. Displaying... What he had displaying had to do with, with simply acting out what it means to be in covenant with Yahweh. Okay? As a priesthood, God marked off Israel from the rest of the nations. They were a holy people. They were to fear God and they were to stand in awe of his name. They were to walk with the Lord in peace and uprightness. I'm getting these from Malachi 2 where he's talking about the priesthood. 
God made Israel distinct in this way. It was good for the nations to see what a community serving God looked like. It was also to the nation's detriment when Israel failed to be distinct in this way. Okay? So likewise, it is to the nation's detriment when we fail to be distinct as a people. We too are holy. God has set us apart from the world on purpose to be a distinct people. The world should be able to observe the life of our church and see what, is it, what does it look like to serve in God's presence. And so, for example, morally, others should be able to look into the life of our church, into our individual lives, and morally speaking, they should see purity. They should see a pursuit of what is holy. They should see a people who have truly been set free from their sins. Such that sin is no longer having dominion over the people. God in Christ has flipped that around such that they have dominion over sin. They are saying no to sin. And while they might not be doing it perfectly, they are getting it out of their life, right? Turning away from it. They should see... A love for what is holy before God. And they should see a brokenness when we fall short. Relationally, they should see order and unity and peace. So they should see, like Trey was talking about a while back from Colossians, when, when the word of Christ dwells in us richly, right? And he talked about that word ruling our relationships with one another. People should be able to look in and see what does God's rule look like on display in a local church. And they should look in and say, this is a good example. Right? They should see the rule of God made visible in our relationships, not just us as individuals, but in our relationships. That that our passions don't rule us. We're not at war with each other. They should also note our wisdom in dealing with various matters. This is one of the things uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. The nations were supposed to see Israel obeying the commandments of God and be amazed at the wisdom of this people. So people should look into the life of our church and see God's wisdom on display. They They should gain a true vision for justice. They should see God's heart for the vulnerable and the poor and the orphan. When others look into your life, do they see the rule of God? After spending time with you, do others leave thinking, man, he walks with God. Man, she is near to God. I I want to know her God.
Or do they see a people who are no different from the rest of the world? Whenever the church starts acting like the world, it should grieve us deeply. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus has these stern warnings for churches who forsake this calling to display God's ways, and instead they soil their garments with the world's ways. So pray that the Lord would work in your life to make you distinct. Not distinct in this kind of smug, self-righteous way, but distinct in all of the right ways that brings the blessing of God's rule into their lives and then compels others to want to know this same Jesus. Okay? The other way priests taught the ways of God was by declaring. So you got displaying and then declaring. When God spoke about Levi in Matthew in Malachi 2, he mentions how the priests were to turn many from their iniquities and how the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and how other people should seek instruction from their mouths. And again, that's representative of what the whole people was supposed to be. In Romans chapter 15, Paul uses priestly language to speak of his missionary work among the Gentiles. 1 Peter 2.9, we read it earlier, describes how uh, our priestly role, um, what, what it looks like in these terms. He says, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. And so uh, that's the sacrifices we bring is proclaiming his excellencies. Okay, so declaring And Revelation continues this theme. But it does so in a very pointed way. As priests, the church declares the excellencies of Christ. In doing so, they're often put to death. But when John sees them from heaven, sees the church from heaven, they are beneath the altar crying out to God. This is Revelation 6. Think about it. That altar is the place where the priests would have poured out blood for the sacrifices. In other words, the sacrifices they bring as priests is the sacrifices of themselves to get the gospel out. They follow in the footsteps of the Lamb. They declare the Lord's word to others even at the cost of their lives. Only the Lamb's blood atones for sin. Only the Lamb's blood frees people from their sins. But our blood helps others to know that atonement and that freedom from their sins. And so the the idea here is that as priests, the way we offer our sacrifices is we, we lay down our lives to see the gospel come into the lives of others So that others will come and receive instruction from mouths of those who know the Lord, who know the truth of the scripture. God has made us a priesthood not only to display his ways, but to declare his ways, even at great cost to ourselves. As priests, we spend our days bringing outsiders closer to God. 
whether that's with our children or extended family or friends or coworkers or classmates or, or teammates, whatever context you might find yourself in, remember that you are a kingdom of priests. Jesus has made you a priest to serve in his presence, both in displaying his worth by what you do and by declaring his worth in what you say, you teach others the way of God. And when we do, our prayer is that the Lord would use all of us to help many others come to acknowledge Jesus' glory because to Him belongs dominion and power forever. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the time we were able to share today in the Word. I ask that we would take it to heart that as your kingdom of priests, we would be faithful in this world and you would use us to bring others to yourself. Please display uh, your rule in our lives day by day. Give us joy that we might delight in Christ and his saving work. And from that joy, from that overflow in his work, would you help us to display his worth and declare it Amen.